Welcome to This Week in Lotus. The weekly roundtable discussion of all things social, collaboration, technology and community. Here's your host, Stuart McIntyre. Episode 2 for Friday the 4th of June. Microsoft are the tech equivalent of Taiwan. This Week in Lotus is sponsored by Moo.com, the online provider with the most beautiful and coolest business cards around. For more information, go to thisweekinlotus.com slash Moo. Well, it's that time of the week again, 12 o'clock on a Friday, in the UK at least, and it's time for your next scheduled dose of This Week in Lotus, the weekly roundtable discussion of all things social, collaboration, technology and community. As usual this week, I'm joined by my co-host all the way from Atlanta, Mr Darren Duke. How are you, Darren? Good morning, Stuart. It's 7am on this side of the Atlantic. <laughs> oh, I, uh, I appreciate your efforts to get up so early and be ready for this. Yeah, um, you know, it's, it's, it's a fun thing to do. We like, we like to do this. It's it's going to take a while to to generate a habit of getting up this early on a Friday morning, but we'll see what we can do. Well, uh, my efforts so far, so thank you so much. Um, first off, I'd like to say a big thank you to all the listeners for um, downloading or streaming episode one last week. We had some really good numbers in terms of people downloading, so um, thank you for that. Hope you enjoyed it. The feedback we've had so far has been uh, pretty positive. Um, a few listeners have asked us to keep the podcast to, to less than an hour, so um, so we'll see how we do on that, Darren. I hope, hopefully we'll manage that this week. I'll talk less. <laughs> no, we appreciate your... your um, <laughs> Things you say, so keep going with that. Um, actually, Darren, on that topic, did you get any feedback from folks about your Google is the next AOL comment last week? No, I, I saw a lot of tweets on it. Um, I think it was a lot of retweets of, of, of your title. Um, and, and no one actually came back and, and said anything, which kind of astonished me. So either it's I completely hit the nail on the head or I am the man from Mars and no one understands what I'm on about. So it was it was kind of intriguing that no one no one ever no one came back, um, and there was a, a a little bit of a dig as well about cloud chirpers in there, and I didn't hear anything about that. So obviously, after my petition to get a, some, somebody fired from last week's podcast, everyone's afraid of the, the derision of Darren, so they left me alone. Oh dear, I hope that's not the case. Um... <laughs> That's great. Okay, that's good news. Um, and then the other thing that came up from last week's episode was really around my, my comment about uh, middle-aged Caucasian company boards not getting um, not getting social software and not adopting it, which I think is, is pretty contentious, but I, I kind of stand by it based on my experience. Bruce Elgore had some words to say on that. So, um, so only, again, keep the feedback coming, folks. If you hear this podcast and something shouts out to you as being um, you know, either wrong or very right and you agree with it, please do um, you know, tweet to us or, or leave a comment on Facebook and so on. We'd love to hear from you. So on with this week's show. Um, today we have three esteemed panellists from the wide world of Lotus Technology. First from IBM UK, we have that suavest of salesmen, keeper of the brightest ties I've ever seen, uh, and ace of the aircraft lounge, Mr Lewis Turek. How are you, Lewis? Hi, Stuart. How are you? I'm really good, thank you. How are you doing? Very well, thank you. Uh, just trying to think what's going on in your world at the moment. You haven't been on a holiday recently, have you? I'm off to Moscow tomorrow. Oh, wow. Is that business or pleasure? No, no, just uh, just pleasure. Tick off Russia. Haven't been there yet, so that'd be fun. 
another one on your chart. Well done, Lewis. Exactly. Thanks for joining us today. Uh, next, we have an esteemed member of the, the Connections Collective, as I term it, IBM design partner for just about every Lotus product there is, and possibly the biggest New York sports fan I know as well, Mr. Mitch Cohen. How are you, Mitch? Stuart, how are you? I'm fine, thanks. And that's a uh, Mets fan, not just New York sports fan. Okay, Mets. And Giants as well, isn't it, on the football side? Mets and Giants, that's correct. I've still got that photo that you uh, had taken with Mike Rodin with him wearing the Giants hat. And it's funny because everybody thought I photoshopped that, but I'm just really not that good with Photoshop. <laughs> so it really happened. Really happened. Oh, so you have to plan to get one with, uh, with Alistair at some stage. Well, the Giants have to get back to the Super Bowl. This is true. Well, may- maybe uh, next year, you never know. And last but but definitely not least, from um, a premier UK business partner, Atlanta Land, and one of the best domino infrastructure and admin folks I've ever worked with, Pete Smith. How are you? Oh, I'm busy blushing. Thank you, Stuart. Uh, so that's what you'd say. <laughs> I'm uh, very pleased to be here. Excellent. So what have you been working with recently, Peter? What are the technologies you're spending most time with? Um... Basically, still around all the Domino stack. We're doing a lot of um, Flickr in the same time at the moment. It's all very popular. Um, doing a lot of, sort of mail system analysis. People sort of looking to upgrade and more rate mail systems. It's a very interesting time. Now. Excellent. Good. So keeping you keeping you out of trouble. That's great. So um, so as usual this week, we've got a um, a list of topics that um that we're we're looking to discuss. Now, first thing I wanted to come to was um the iPad, which we talked about quite a lot on last week's episode with uh, Mike Smith and Turtle Partnership, talking about the iPad. So they just picked up. I, I think Lewis, you have one as well, didn't you? Yes, I, I was sad enough to ensure that I went to the states to get one and came home and brought it back with me. Excellent. How have you got on with it so far? It. It, it, it's it's a life changing device. It's it's far and away different from a mobile phone and different from a laptop. Um, I was away for a, a week on holiday and a recent work trip to Germany for four days. Didn't bother taking my laptop with me and did everything I needed to do from mail to surfing the web um, to watching funny YouTube videos uh, on the iPad. It's it, it does everything I need to do, and my poor MacBook Pro is slowly becoming a bookshelf. A bookend. A very expensive bookend, I would say. So, <laughs> a very shiny bookend, yes. <laughs> so are there any apps that you're missing or any particular things that you need to do as part of your work or your sort of personal life that you can't do on the iPad? Um, no, in a nutshell. Everything works. Uh, I, was, I wasn't sure how well it would work, um, but I've had no problems whatsoever. Really easy to set up. Um, and, and the one thing I'm noticing is within IBM in the office, we're probably seeing somebody with an iPad coming in for the first time every day. So there's new iPads coming in every day and setting people up on Traveller, 10-minute job. Really? Is that quick? It, it's faster to set them up on an iPad than it is to set them up on a Mac or, uh, or on a ThinkPad or any other PC. And how do you find the mail experience with Traveller on the iPad? Because I, I know on the iPhone it's, yeah, it's, pretty good, it's pretty great the way that Traveller works in terms of you getting your emails quickly and being able to deal with them. But the, the whole mail experience on the iPhone I, I find quite lacking in terms of switching between mail accounts and that kind of thing. Have you, have you found it good on the iPad? I think there are two things that make it better for me on the iPad. One is the full keyboard. I find the iPhone keyboard just, just too small for me to use effectively. On the iPad, I can type as fast um, on the iPad as I can on my Mac, which either suggests that typing is very, very good or I can't type very quickly at all. Um, but I think the interface in portrait mode I struggle with still on the iPad. 
Uh, but in landscape mode, it is just brilliant. It's it's so easy to use. Move things between folders, drag and drop, multiple selections of email to file. I I I, I truly believe this is the start of something very different. And when my MacBook Pro eventually dies in three, four, five years, whatever, I don't think I'll I'll be replacing it with a laptop style device with a keyboard and a lid. So from your point of view, is it the iPad as in the design of that device that makes it particularly you know, special in that area? Or is it just the whole thing of using touch to, to manage your email and manage the other types types of things you're doing? I think that's a good question. I think I think it's a little bit of both. Anything with an Apple logo, as I've learned over the last six months, is, is by default brilliant. So the design is very good. Uh, but when surfing the web, we all started using the internet how many years ago with a keyboard and a mouse, and that's the way that we've become used to surfing. If you think about it logically, take a step back, it actually makes more sense if you see something you like the look of, not to move a random bit of plastic to it, but just to touch it. And if it's too small, you pick it up and you squeeze it and make it bigger. Um, the logic behind surfing the web with your fingers is, is actually quite a lot more sensible than using a keyboard and mouse. Yeah, I guess so. I guess so. So just, just interested, Mitch, you, you obviously work in a corporate environment. Are you seeing many iPads coming into your environment? We're, we're seeing a few of them come in. I mean, we're not, they're, they're not proliferating across the place yet. We do have some people using Traveler on them, though. And, you know, having seen it, it's a very nice interface uh, to work through mail and other things on. Absolutely. Okay, so I mean, can can you see you know corporates beginning to support them in terms of rolling out travel and so on to them, or, or do you think it's more still people buying them individually and then asking their IT department or their their friendly admin to put them on the system? Well, what I think we're going to see, and I know at least in the US, I think IBM already works like this, but I think we're going to see more in the US is companies letting people choose their own devices and then bring it and connect up to the corporate email system and onto other corporate systems. So whereas, you know, BlackBerry's really been the big player in enterprise email, I do think that with technologies, whether it's Traveler or it's good technology or others, I think we're going to see more people, more companies saying, great, go get your device. We'll get you hooked up, you know, to our systems. Yeah. And I see that too. And I've seen some tweets this week about people using some of the web apps as well from Lotus on the iPad and liking the way they work. So things like um, you know, connections and quicker and so on seem to work pretty well on those devices. And, and obviously we also have some apps from um, Snaps as well that are supported on the iPad. So, so clearly the Lotus community is beginning to build around it, which is good to hear. Have you seen any in, in use, Darren, this week? No. Um, like I said last week, the only one I've seen live is, is, is Bruce's. What, what is interesting is we're, we're seeing from a services standpoint exactly what Mitch has said, and that is corporations are slowly morphing into a, a BYOB, bring your own BlackBerry, it used to be. Now it's bring, bring your own device and, and we'll hook it up as best as possible. And I think Traveler, from, from the IBM side, is, is, is kind of a game changer in that. And, and just so people know, Traveler's not, not, not really new. It's actually a, a product called SyncML, which is an open source product that's been around for about a decade. So it really is tried and true technology. It's nothing brand new that, that IBM just magically yanked out of the air. It, it is built on a, on a pretty robust platform. Yeah, absolutely. And I, I've seen that in university environments as well where, um, you know, they've rolled out Blackberries to, you know, perhaps, um, 
you know a majority of the staff but there's no way they would ever roll out corporate devices to the students whereas again as you were saying bring your own device <laughs> works really well in that environment where they can just plug in particularly where they don't have to pay a license fee like traveler it's just a great solution yeah and we'll talk about blackberry a bit later on i've got a couple of other points on that Okay. This week's also been fairly um, notable from my point of view in terms of new uh, fixed packs from IBM. We've had a few come along. So should we start with um, with 851 and Notes and Domino fixed pack 3? Have any of you guys installed that in your systems yet? I've done a few client upgrades to fixed pack 3. No servers yet. Is there anything notable in that in that release, or is it just the usual fixes and you know and so on on the system, or are there any changes that we need to know about? There's 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 two big ones, but the two notable ones I've had clients waiting for fix pack three is one is obviously the the famous um, get document by key error that's allegedly fixed according to Eric Brooks now in Fixpack 3. Eric was the one that publicized that problem. But the main one is actually server archiving on the, on the server side where there is a, uh, a problem today where server-side archiving, if a target server, I believe it's a target server, so dear listener, listener, uh, please check the tech notes for this, but I think that if the target server is 851 without Fixpack 3, there is a chance it will delete your attachments when it archives them. So this is a pretty big one if you're doing server-based archiving. Yeah, and, and that was something I blogged about a couple of weeks ago in terms of um, I think the only the only way of getting those attachments back if you have lost them is to, is to restore the archive, which um, is something that people need to be aware of. Even if they upgrade to this new fix pack, if they've been running on the old version for a while with this issue, then uh, that they need to to deal with that at some stage. Again, as Darren yes, says, look at the tech note. Yeah, it's not retroactive. Yeah. Okay. Um, Peter, have you done anything with Fixpack 3 yet? Uh, no, not yet, to be honest. Um, like all Fixpack release notes, you read through them and it sounds horrendous. <laughs> and you, <laughs> and the quickest way to deploy one is to actually read the fix list and think, oh my God, oh my God, could that happen? Could that really happen to me? Um, but I haven't heard from our support guys yet. I imagine that we are putting on for various customers, but I haven't had to stumble across it. I happily live in the Mac world myself. So um, I sort of get in, in a bit of a bubble from what's happening on um the Windows side of things. I think that's true of a fair number of people in the community these days. Um, <laughs> and something, uh, something I'd be interested in is, is from a point of view of quicker and same time, if, if you've got quicker and same time running on 8.5.1 at the moment, what, what would you guys say in terms of upgrading to Fixpack 3? It always seems to be a slightly sort of, um, you know, unsure position there as to whether the latest Fixpacks are supported. Would you guys go to Fixpack 3 in that scenario? If I was on a VMware instance... And, and why why that? Because you can roll back if you need to. Yeah, I'd snapshot, upgrade, see if it's any better. If it is, leave it. If it's not, revert. Anyone else? Oh. Are you saying the like for the quicker service, Stuart? Yeah. Ah, oh, because I thought. Oh no, so I'm thinking at the same time or quicker because it's supported on eight five at the moment, isn't it? Quicker. It is. But we, we had that. We had that drawn out. Um, it runs fine, but they they say to you to it should be on eight five really. Well, we had this out yet last year, I think, or earlier this year. But um, I would probably, if you're on eight five, leave it there and wait for it to become supported. Okay. 
Hopefully people will uh, will take that advice. Um, and the other thing we saw this week has been uh, Ledge Connections 2.5 Fixed Pack 2 as well. And that's one we've been waiting a very long time for, Mitch. I think you'd probably agree. There's been a, a good number of fixes released since Fixed Pack 1. Have, have you been installing those fixes as you've been moving along? I mean, we've been. We don't necessarily install all of them because, as you might know, it takes a little while to get some of these fix packs in. Uh, and as as you get further away from a major fix pack, you wind up with hundreds and hundreds of little fixes to put in. So it gets to be a little time consuming. Uh, with fix pack two, basically, it rolls in a couple of hundred fixes that were out already, as well as additional fixes into one fix pack. Uh, the install that I did, which was in a sandbox of mine, uh, the longest part of it actually was rolling back the individual fixes that I had already put on that system. It actually took about 90 minutes to install, which isn't bad considering that's running on a uh, T61 laptop, my sandbox. Uh, unfortunately, of course, Fix Pack 2 came out, and within days we've already got a number of post Fix Pack 2 fixes as well. So. They keep on coming. Yeah, we're back on the cycle again. Were there any- and and one, one other thing of note on Fixed Pack 2, actually, though, uh, if anybody has an external-facing um, connections implementation, there are some, there actually are some vulnerability fixes in Fixed Pack 2. There's a link to it from my blog, uh, but people should be aware. that that's If you're external-facing, probably something you want to look at. Good advice, um, and and you know, as you just said, it's actually the rolling back of the existing fixes you've got on the system. It seems to take so so long. Um, I've got several customers that have got fix pack one plus, you know, eighty, ninety, a hundred fixes on there, and so that's something we we're planning for is is to get a big enough outage to roll back to actually put fix pack two on. So that's good. Have you done any work with connections, Darren or Peter? Yeah, uh, yeah. So we, we've seen exactly the same thing you and Mitch mentioned is. That the fix pack itself is actually reasonably trivial, provided you get the right version of the fix pack installer, right? Because it is WebSphere, so the installer is tied to a specific version of WebSphere installer, etc., etc., etc. But the, the big, the big issue is is rolling back the fixes, and it was so bad for our internal production connection server. We have pretty much not put any post fix pack one fixes on because it does take so long to uninstall them. So we've, if unless we've had a specific problem we needed a fix for, we've just held off and we'll go straight to fix back to over the next couple of weeks. Interesting. Okay, yeah, so that's certainly something that um, you know, many customers might look to do for the same kind of reason as you have. And, and I guess the other point on the fix pack also is, of course, if you've customized anything, you know, in any JSP files or any JAR files, you do have to go back and reapply those. Can I ask you actually, Mitch, on that, how have you been documenting the changes you've been making with regard to customizations? Have you got any tips you can share in terms of how you do that to make sure you do recover those when you do upgrade? So what I've basically tried to do for any customizations is I've basically been storing them in, you know, each each customization in its own XML file and basically just the customized section and documenting where you know, in, in which file, whether it was a config file or a JSP file, where where it started and where it ended in the file. So it's a matter of just taking that code, finding the right spot, and putting it back in. Excellent. There, 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 there are some changes coming in that in future releases of connections, but we probably can't get too far into that yet. No, something I, I had a lot of uh, prompts from people on Twitter saying, talk about Lotus Connections 3 uh, or Lotus Connections Next, whichever version you want to talk about, um, which we can't do just yet. 
uh, because of NDAs and so on. But hopefully we can cover that as we move on with these episodes. Um, the other uh, fixed pack or new release that we had this week was, um, again, part of the design partner program, 852, um, the latest code drop when it came out this week. Darren, have you got anything that you particularly want to cover from that? Yeah, so there was a lot of screenshots on on Twitter with the new option at install, and this is specifically 852 code drop 5, and I guess later, that allows you to choose when you install it, and I guess there's a preference somewhere, to say, in, load some of the notes files during OS startup. And I think that's kind of interesting. You know, let's let's play smoke and mirrors and move the problem of notes taking 30 to 50 to 60 seconds to start up. Let's move it to the OS level and, and smoke and mirror and make Microsoft look bad. And I don't necessarily think that's a bad idea because that's exactly what Microsoft do in their OSs. So, so IBM are just playing the normal Microsoft game. There's been a couple of posts. You know, Julian Buss mentioned it and Chris Miller mentioned it. And I think Ulrich... Krause, on one of them posts, somebody's post, he mentioned that he saw no difference in it. Um, I've installed it. I've got a solid-state drive. So honestly, I I can't really test that because mine's kind of fast anyway. Um, So it would be interesting to see if any of the design partners just want to tweet us and let us know, does it seem to make a difference on normal mechanical drives? Would would that make a difference? And would users notice? I'm I'm not sure they would, unless you get a 50% reduction. Most users are going to ignore that. They're not going to see it be any fast. 15 seconds is still too slow for some people. Yeah, Peter, have you tried out the latest code drop? Only on a Mac, I'm afraid. <laughs> I quite like I quite like the idea of of, of the you know load some stuff at OS time. Um, there's you know there's, there's different schools of customers. Some customers are quite adept at telling their users, well, you know, your, your computer's busy loading, just wait till it settles down, then launch notes. Other customers used to, you know, have notes in the startup programs. Um, if this does improve things, then it's great because it is an option. You know, it's, it's, it's I think the, the screenshots we've seen on the blogs are the ones for, you know, make notes, my default mail program and stuff, and the other one says um, launch some stuff at startup. So, you know, it's not going to be everyone has to do it. It's, it's if you think it's working in your environment. So I think it's a good step forward. Um, of course, the other way of doing it is to set a very high-level security policy that forces you to have a 25-letter password. And then by the time they finish typing that in, it'll be loaded anyway. <laughs> so, um, <laughs> no. the, underlying thing I, the underlying thing I you know, agree with is that notes takes too long to load. Um, so anything they can do to speed it up. And you know, it's getting quicker to load, um, since 8 at least, <laughs> is a good thing. No, absolutely right. Um, and- Something I'd be interested in is, is with your customers, guys, uh, uh, you know, and, and Mitch as well, in your environment, do, do Windows users still shut down every night? Is that something you see from people, that they shut down and then start up their PC and, and notes the next day? I mean, I'm so used to, again, on the Mac, just closing the lid and you know, starting up wherever you left off. Is that really a, a user behavior thing where people do start notes that regularly? Yes, they do. And only, uh, the only safe PC is an off PC. <laughs> <laughs> I, I I agree. I think most I think most of your average users, you know, it's their mindset is leave the office shut down, turn it back on when you get. Do you want to use it again? Yeah, and therefore and, I guess IBM's right to spend time trying to make it as fast and speedy as they can. Well, and I think I think they have to because because the perception is and, and like like Peter said that there was a massive increase between eight zero and eight zero one. And I've actually got some posts on the blogs about relative start times, and it was it was kind of radical. Um, obviously, I'm a 
I've said several times over just two podcasts, I have a solid state drive, so I'm kind of insulated from that now. But one of the interesting things that's happened is the hard drive manufacturers, and specifically the one I'm thinking about is Seagate, has just come out with what's called a hybrid drive. And this isn't the drive that uses green fuels or, or corn. This is a hybrid drive that is, is part solid state and part mechanical. And I think that gets you the best of both worlds. It gets you the storage. Like, I think the smallest is 250 gig and the biggest is 500 gig. Well, you can't do that in a solid state world. It's just too expensive. That's about a four grand drive. So it's, it's reasonably spacious, but it's also reasonably cheap. I think I saw it retailing for like 139 bucks in the US. So the, the difference really is these, these hybrid drives, they learn based on patterns. So you start at Windows the first time, it's going to be the same speed it was just with a mechanical drive. But what these hybrid drives do is they stash often used files in, a, in like a four gig solid state drive. Uh, that's, that's built in. So when, when you then start a Windows, Windows that maybe starts up in 30 seconds now starts up in 10. I haven't yet got one because Newegg, one of the big distributors in the US, is sold out almost instantly. But when I can get my hands on one, I'm going I'm to test one of these puppies and see if it makes a real big difference to notes. And I have a feeling you may well start to see laptops in the next six months ship with these hybrid drives because it's the best of both worlds and that will fix notes problems out of the gate immediately. So is it effectively just a very large cache that's on solid state? Or, or is there some that's more that, sort of intelligence in terms of what it stores on that bit? It, it really is. It's, it's kind of a really big cache. The one, the one I'm thinking of, the, the Seagate Momentus XT. And uh, one of the things we're going to do is we're going we're gonna, to, all of these URLs we talk about, we're going to post on the blog so the listeners can actually see what we're talking about. Um, the, the Momentus XT has effectively a four gig read-only solid-state drive. So when I say read-only, I mean it's not writing consistently to the solid-state drive. What happens is the drive intelligently looks at your usage profile when you're starting applications. What do you, what do you start most often? And it'll put them files in the 4 gig. So when it's reading the file to start up, it reads it straight out of the 4 gig solid-state drive piece. And that gets you massive speed increases when you're starting up because a lot of, especially notes, for example, there's a lot of files that are read in these little tiny jar files and these property files because of the Eclipse nature now that, that slow it down. So anything you can do to speed up the read time is, is, is going to be phenomenal. So that's how it works. If effectively, Stuart, yes, you're right. It's a big cache. Excellent. Oh, it's well, well worth having a look at that. We'll, we'll put the essay, we'll put the link on the, uh, on the blog and you can have a look on there as well. That's wonderful. Okay, um, next I wanted to, to move on to um, there being some um, a good number of posts this week about the future collaboration in terms of Ed Brill, I know, blogged about um, a Forrester report uh, that, and something that was on ZDNet as well about email being here to stay but changing. Um, I wondered on that uh, whether we, we had any feelings as a group about Google Wave. Have any of you used Wave and, and has that changed at all the way you think Lotus should move forward with collaboration tools? Stuart, it's Lewis. I, I logged into Google Wave and I just didn't get it. Maybe I missed the fundamental point of it. Maybe I didn't have enough of my friends and colleagues that were also registered to use Wave. But for the life of me, I couldn't work it out. I think you're not alone in that, Lewis. I think many people... No, I, I was going to... I was going to echo Lewis, though. I logged on, I got a beta account and I was the only one on there that I knew. And I was you know, what do you do now? But it's, it's the same sort of thing with Buzz, in a way, in that these things are great, but you all have to be there. I mean, when I first saw the demos, you know, of, of Wave and it came out, I thought, 
this could, you know, this could be a major game change, but it's all sort of died away. And if it's acted as a spur to the rest of the market to improve, you know, was that a spur to IBM for Vulcan? Who can say? But um, well, I think maybe, maybe it jogged people out of complacency and given them an idea, you know, some impetus to improve Mel as a, as a, as a sort of standard for your collaboration. Pete, my, my impression of it was Wave could have been very clever, but people didn't want to be logging into a different system. And that's what I think Vulcan will do quite cleverly, is put yeah. everything from a huge multitude of sources into one place. And actually, it'll help you decide what's the best way to, to send a bit of content to somebody else, whether it's an attachment, whether it's an email, whether it's whatever we choose to call a wave. It'll, it'll help you to do that. Yeah, I agree. And, and let's face it, what users are going to do is whatever's easiest. So having to go to another system is not an easy way to do things. So, you know, if Vulcan brings things into where you are and it becomes the easiest way to achieve something, then it, then it will be adopted. Um, never underestimate yeah, the agency users. And one of the things, like it or not, that I think is where Vulcan has it right is, and it's the title of the you know article, you're, you're talking about email is here to stay, right? Whether we like it or not, whether we think yeah. it's the right thing or not, it's where a lot of people are comfortable working today. And, and, and that's the lowest common denominator. One of the things I found interesting reading the article was that Google Wave was deemed confusing and incomplete. I've, I've heard Google be blamed a lot for incomplete, but I've never ever heard them blamed for confusing. So if Google got this wrong, and you know Google are probably only second to Apple in, in user interface design, love fanboys, then you know there's a big problem. And, and, and the, the key is, is email is simple. Everyone knows double click, read, forward, reply, send, I've got an address book. It doesn't take any training to get a man. I think one of the things that Wave did, I'm, I'm like everyone else, I logged in, I looked at it, I thought, huh, okay, I'm Billy Nomitz. I don't have anyone else on, on Wave, so this is not for me. And I, I came, and I've never been back, and that was probably six months ago. So I think the problem that, that we have is, is moving people beyond demon. And, and Mitch is exactly right. It's easy, it's simple, it's, it's multifaceted, and now it's pervasive. I can get it on every single device on the planet, or even from my granny's house, provided she has internet access. That, that Wave and Vulcan have that gap across. I think another key point is Gmail, when it first started, Google Mail came out in beta mode, and it worked in beta because you could just be on it and you're sending email to people from Yahoo and from corporate and from personal domains and Hotmail and all that stuff. When they released Buzz and made it beta only, and you, you, it was as if you'd won a competition to get access to it, it didn't work. So these people had the experience of having Billy No Mates, and then two weeks later, their mates are now on there, but they don't want to go back on there because there was no one on there. So when this sort of thing needs to be released to be successful, it needs to go, it either needs to be public from day one or in the enterprise, I, I foresee it, it needs to be available to the corporate world, to everybody in the organization on a certain day. And I think they've, they've started to do that. I mean, this week they've added it into both Wave and Buzz into their Google Apps accounts. So where people do have Google Apps, either Premier or the standard version that's free, they're now beginning to get access to some of those tools. So I think it is coming, but it's almost like they've done things in the wrong order. They should have been putting it into existing accounts before they released it to the wider world. Um, what's, what's funny is that, uh, you know, I agree that one of the reasons it wasn't very effective was you went there and your friends weren't there, but they generated a ton of, you know, PR around it by people 
you know, by people having contests, giving away wave invites and tweeting, does anybody have wave invites? It's amazing how much they got about wave out there by, by doing that limited thing. Now I agree. That's why a lot of people didn't use it, but the, the flip side of that is how much they had people buzzing about it. That's a double-edged sword, though, isn't it? Because you, you create that expectation, and we were all there doing, who's got the wave invite, who's got the wave invite? And, and that's great to get you to a finished product. When you went in there and you were the only one, that was a massive letdown, and therefore you're less likely to go back because you had that heightened expectation, which wasn't ultimately fulfilled. And it, it's, it's named wrong. I mean, Google Wave is, you know, Gmail, obvious. Google is now synonymous across a world with search a, a google wave you say that to someone and, and they'll look at you like like a puppy it's 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 a nomenclature issue and again i think ibm is going to hit this wall with falcon is is how do we describe it in in one or two words especially when this is a whole new arena i, I can't remember not having an email address and what i think we're at now is kind of the place when email was first invented and maybe only 15 people had email addresses. How do I send you an email if I don't have an email address? And I think Google Wave has exactly the same problem. And like Stuart says, maybe Google are going to end around this by using their already mighty forces that they've already got and just just building it in. So you have to use it. Um, will that work? Who knows? I'm not going back. I think it's also about it fitting it into your existing portfolio of collaboration tools, really, isn't it? I mean, a question I get asked a lot with connections is, if I want to share a particular piece of knowledge, how do I do that? Is it an activity? Is it a community? You know, do I upload a file? Do I create a wiki? And, and your average user has to make those decisions of which tools do I use for doing a particular job, a use case, if you like. And I think that's going to be true of whatever comes next to after email, is that we're going to have to give users a way of them choosing from, from all these different options how they do that particular task. And, and therefore, having Wave as a separate destination you go to to do a job was useless because you've got to choose to go there and other people have got to know you're going to go there to do that. Whereas if it's part of a more um, consolidated group of tools like Vulkan seems to be in terms of the visionary piece, then, then maybe that's more apt. And, and, and that, that's maybe a valid point. You know, looking back at the article, I read it again this morning, is, is I get the feeling that it, it may be right. Email may be here forever. There's still occasions where I pick up a writing implement and a piece of paper, and that's been around for a couple of thousand years, and that's not going away either. So, you know, maybe there's a place for all three, paper and pen, email, and whatever the next gen of collaboration is. Interesting. Okay. Well, I mean, it, it certainly covers some of the ground there. I, I think, yeah, we, we all would love email to, to die away in some ways, but as you say, it's probably not going to go away. And that's certainly what Forrester think. And I think Ed, Ed and other people in IBM that obviously are, are behind the Notes brand certainly want that to be the case, that Notes doesn't go away because email goes away. But suddenly you actually begin to see some of the functionality that Notes has always had behind the scenes in terms of collaboration applications coming to the fore because people are using those rather than email. So, so that's great. I mean, Lewis, you, you obviously talk to customers. Are you getting asked by customers to, to talk about next-gen collaboration? I think customers want to see thought leadership if we, if we just talk about mail, if we're honest, the difference between the latest version of Notes, the difference between the latest version of Office, um, uh, sorry, of, of Outlook, there's not much there. So 
I get the feeling customers are actually looking for which companies thinking a little bit more about into the future. Um, and that's where things like Vulcan really, really work well. We're not quite there with it. We know we're not quite there with it, but it's a it's something to look forward to and something to work for. On the subject of, of changing technology, let, let's change tack a little bit in terms of there was a post this week by Jake Howlett regarding um, using some different programming technologies. I think he was talking about ASP.NET. Um, again, we'll put the link on the uh, on the blog. Um, and, and how he'd found it quite refreshing to be able to do some of these things and then work sort of seamlessly as compared with his experience with LAMP, with the PHP and, and MySQL stack. Um, and, and I'm interested to know from people on this call, you know, we're obviously talking a lot in the Lowe's community about X pages. Uh, do you find customers and, and users within your organization beginning to get the new programming technologies? Or is there still confusion in terms of which technologies developers should be looking at to, to develop their, their next applications? Oh, okay, it's, it's uh, the time for quote of the week. And, and, and quote of the week is Microsoft have a technology equivalent of Taiwan. They will not, not invent anything new, but they will build it simpler and better than almost anybody out there. And the sad state of affairs is, and, and, and I'm going to shock the entire community. I am actually a software engineer. I just do admin because it's a lot easier. Um, but so I'm a software engineer. I'm a Java guy by trade. Um, and because of that, I have actually used Eclipse a long time ago. I've used Visual Studio in all of its iterations and also Domino Designer since R3. When you look at it, Visual Studio is a very, very polished piece of software. And one of the things Microsoft have always done well is, is integration with their entire portfolio. It is as simple as that. And I know where Jake's coming from because it is a beautiful environment, especially if you used old-style Domino Designer and especially if you've used the, the, the open source stack. There's not often really out there for that kind of stuff. And you move to Visual Studio and it, it's a godsend. And one thing I will say is XPages is not that type of integration yet. There's a lot of things where we have to come back out of a prompt box to go back in and find it, but I think IBM is on, on the right track. Mitch, does your organization develop applications as well? I mean, I think, you know, not talking about necessarily my organization specifically, but I think that where I see XPages really coming in is if you... If you have existing applications that you really want to make look better or really do something with, and I also think what's really interesting about it is if you're a note shop, if you're running an 851 or later client, being able to really have one UI and take your applications offline in a very, very seamless manner. I mean, that that to me is, I think, the real big thing that XPages can deliver to a place running notes applications. And obviously, that, that right once and used in many different situations is, is, is really powerful. Um, and and I, I certainly see a lot of customers beginning to, to make moves into doing X pages where they typically developed in, in older style domino technologies. Um, and and I, I think users are beginning to see the benefits of that. Um, certainly, I've, I've seen a lot of discussion databases and so on being moved forward into the new XPages design and, and people are like, wow, is that really Domino and Notes under the covers? So I, I think the, the possibilities in terms of developing nicer UIs are really beginning to, to make inroads. Peter, how, how about you? Um, you know, does, 
I, I know land to land do some development. Have, have your guys begin to, to get um, get to grips with X pages? Uh, we are. Um, I think it's fair to say that the majority of customers they are still in that exploratory phase. You know, um, most now have gone up to some form of either eight or eight five eight five one. Um, from the server and infrastructure and client side, and they love the mail and all the new features, but really they haven't got to grips with redeveloping their apps into into an next page environment or any of the any of it. I mean, I know we might come to this later, but there's this great undiscovered country out there which is the sidebar. You know, how many people are actually making use of the sidebar and things like live text? I think you know why everyone's catching up on the infrastructure side of let's have the servers in, let's have the client. We want the UI, we want the features. You know, the parity of mail and all that sort of stuff and things like Deos and ID Vault, I think on the development side is, is still lagging behind and it's only now. I mean, we're still having conversations this week with customers about what could X pages do for you. Um, I think you know, it's a longer life cycle for an app to say we're going to go back and rewrite our apps now or improve them. They have to justify their investment. But hopefully it can start catching up quickly because I think there's a lot of potential out there which a lot of customers aren't actually leveraging at the moment. Lewis, I know in IBM there's a huge number of sidebar apps uh, and, and notes apps that, that you guys use on a regular basis. It, are you seeing a big shift forward in terms of new functionality being you know, given to, to end users, if you like, within IBM in terms of some of the apps you have in your notes client? There are a huge number of apps available there for sidebar and also a huge number of widgets in our widget catalogue um, for live text. I think... Most users don't know that they are there. So adding widgets to your live text before you ship it to users is sensible. Um, I, I think only a very small minority of users will actively look to extend their notes client. Stuart, for me, I think it's about the, the IT and the line of business folk in organizations thinking about what would be needed. Um, and at, at its most basic level, for example, Google Maps uh, when, when it recognizes a UK postcode or a US zip code and providing that functionality out of the box to, to users. Users don't know nor frankly care whether it's a live text or a widget or a sidebar. Um, they see a function, they like it working, great. Don't care how it works, but it does its thing. Okay, on to BlackBerry now. We mentioned that earlier on. Um, my, my feeling is is from... Talking to a lot of customers, people are feeling that, that BlackBerry and RIM is, is possibly sort of falling behind the curve in, in terms of further development. We've talked about Microsoft already today. Uh, there's been some interesting posts on the register. Again, we'll link to those um, from the uh, from the This Week in Lotus site in terms of them falling behind the, the curve in terms of innovation in the mobile space. You know, Windows Mobile was one of the major players two or three years ago. It, it very much probably fourth or fifth on the list now. Do we feel that RIM are keeping up with the development that um, you know that Android and, and Apple are doing in that area? No, def- definitely not on the hardware. So you see on the hardware rather than on the software side, they're dropping back, Mitch. I, I think that they, I think they've shown the potential to catch up on the software side. I think they have the right direction with their OS six. I just want to see them deliver on a device that gets people excited. Uh, there's if if you're really interested if if you're an email and calendar person I still don't think there's a better device than a BlackBerry out there, but most of us are doing a lot more than mail and calendar on our devices and 
if they can deliver a browser, if they can get their app strategy straight, but they're definitely falling behind right now. Their, their app strategy is a complete mess. I think there's an interesting crossover at the moment between um, things like BlackBerry and then Android and iPhones. In that BlackBerry is the old corporate phone which had mail and it was a brick and you gave it to people and it was reliable. And the others were consumer devices. And now because of things like Traveller and I suppose ActiveSync, um, corporate users see that they can use these uh, personal devices they prefer from an app point of view in their corporate environment. But at the same time, BlackBerry are having a renaissance in selling their devices to Joe Public for things like BlackBerry Messenger. I mean, I was in a phone shop and I bought my Android phone and there were teenagers in there with their parents buying Blackberries and my sister-in-law bought a BlackBerry. Mm. They're not corporate users, they're buying it for BlackBerry Messenger. So in the you one hit the nail have... on the head uh, At universities and colleges, certainly in the UK, um, whilst an iPhone is, is great for the apps, people are buying BlackBerry Messages because it's free to communicate. They don't need to worry about text messages, costs, they don't need to worry about phone costs. You just see people BBMing everywhere. And for me, I see it, it's a little bit of the revolution of text messaging, of SMS messaging. You know, the rumor goes back that the mobile phone companies didn't realize just how big SMS would be. I don't think BlackBerry realized quite how big BBM would be until it started to really take off. That's really interesting. I, I mean, I've had Blackberries for several years and have never, ever used Blackberry Messenger. Is it, you, you really see it being used that often, Lewis? Yes. I was yes. on a rib course. Both yeah. with friends and work colleagues. I mean, just to give you an example, I was on a rib course the other week, and there was a chap there from one of the telcos, and they were talking about this massive consumer expansion in devices. And it's all around BlackBerry Messenger. And like you, I didn't even realize I had it on my phone. But <laughs> now that I'm aware of it and I'm asking around, it, you know, they are all using it, and this is what they're using it for. And you speak to people and they go, yeah, my kid's got a BlackBerry, and they're on it all the time, and that's what they're doing. So, you know, I, our old corporate I, devices are going one way and the consumer devices are coming to the corporation. It's a bit bizarre. And, and that's exactly it. Pete, Peter's nailed it right there. Everybody is throwing their phones over the other side of the fence. So BlackBerry have realized, and this has been going on for three years, um, BlackBerry have realized there's very little growth in the enterprise market. Let's throw all of our devices over the consumer side. That's where the original Pearl came from. And the, you got Apple and Google all eyeing the enterprise one to come the other way. So, you know, it's, it's interesting. And BlackBerry Instant Messenger is, is on every BlackBerry. I have never, ever got it consistently to work. So that's the only warning to everyone. Don't try and get me on it because it probably isn't going to work. Interesting. I, 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 I could... And we've lost him. Lewis is gone. Maybe he could. <laughs> I think there's definitely going to be a crossover point, isn't there? Yeah, you know, where consumer phones are moving into um, the enterprise, and enterprise phones are moving towards consumer. So it's going to be interesting to see how that moves forward, and, and at what point the sort of crossover really happens. Um, but but Rim, Rim, Rim have a larger issue, and the larger issue is that the, the enterprise cycle of cell phone purchases is completely different to the consumer. I think the average consumer keeps their cell phone for less than 18 months. So the churn on both the providers and the cell phone carriers is massive. On the enterprise side, I still walk into organizations and see BlackBerry 7000 series. You know, the one that looks like a hockey puck? Because all BlackBerrys never die. They just get pushed down the, le- the level. So, you know, it used to be the CEO, and now the, the guy, the janitor's gone BlackBerry. <laughs> Isn't that interesting? Obviously, to, you know, just keep them and move them on. Uh, again, trying to maintain their, their investment, I guess. Uh, have any of you guys tried the Storm or the Storm 2? I had a Storm. 
I was not a big fan of it. It wasn't a perfect storm then. <laughs> I've only ever tried one for 10 minutes, so I have no great knowledge, but I just found it an awful device, really hard to use, particularly when you come from an iPhone. And I mean, in fairness, I had the storm before they got OS 5 on it. People have said better things about it after it got OS 5, but uh, by that point, I had moved on. I think a lot of people are in that situation where they had to. So, uh, okay, well, Rim yeah. has some work to do there. I, I must say, on the positive, I, I've recently been playing around a lot with the Quicker and Connections clients for the BlackBerry, which just works so well. Very, very impressive. Um, I don't know whether any of you guys have tried those. So I've, I've been no, using been them. I think they're doing a nice job with them. I think the thing that most existing customers feel is that, you know, it's, it's a little slap in the face that now you have to go out and buy those separately. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Especially because the connections one used to be free. Yeah. And, and a from, from my functionality in there, but as you say, it's the whole process of having to procure them that, that adds, adds a lot of, of cost to the whole effort. Sorry, carry on, Mitch. I was just—I just don't see them selling a lot of it right now. I think they've done a nice job with it. I've looked at you know, you know, every version they've had, including the one coming out soon. And yeah, you're right; it's got a lot of functionality. Uh, they they do a nice job with them. But I don't see a lot of people buying them. I don't really see a lot of uh, excitement or chatter about them out there. And, and that, I guess, is, is an illustration in some ways of how they've fallen behind the iPhone and the iPad in terms of apps as well. In terms of, I'm not sure that many BlackBerry users are used to using it for anything other than email and phone. So, um, again, that's something they, they need to catch up with. Um, I mean, just to tell it off, Stuart, I mean, I have to say, as a long-time BlackBerry user, I never actually ever wanted to do anything else on the BlackBerry apart from mail. It didn't inspire me to. But within minutes of owning an Android phone, I suddenly understood the whole concept of, you know, mobile devices of the future and everything we pushed to them. I could never quite grasp it in the BlackBerry world. But, um, and it is down to the device, and I think they'll need to produce an Android-esque or iPhone-esque phone with a sort of touchy screen to, to sort of recapture that market. Which Android device did you get? I've got an HTC Desire, and it's fantastic. <laughs> Excellent. There's been a lot of chat, again, on, on Twitter and so on, of, of which, because they've just released a whole a whole bunch of new HTC phones, haven't they? The Evo and... Yeah, you, you have to so step on. carefully, because, you know, a, a dodgy mobile phone salesman will tell you they're all basically the same, but they're not. And um, you really want to go for one with a nice processor like the Desire. There are no dodgy goes. mobile phone salesmen. <laughs> there are no, no, no dodgy. How many negatives have you got? I think I know what you mean. <laughs> so we got Lewis on here, so you can't say anything about Lotus salespeople. Um, <coughs> so moving on, um, the last uh, news item I, I had, and I think it's one that you added, Darren, was around the um, the jobs that are coming um, up at the moment in the Lotus world. It seems to be a bit of a resurgence in terms of the number of jobs that are around and, and how they're being communicated. Yeah, just just like RIM, a resurgent in the consumer environment, it seems like jobs have been resurgent in, in, in the domino space specifically. Um, you know, Thomas Duff, a.k.a. Duffbert, has a, a Twitter account, Lotus Watch, all one word, L-O-T-U-S-W-A-T-C-H. And he lists a lot of jobs from a lot of different locations as well. It's not just a specific piece of a specific country. It seems to be, you know, worldwide. I think budgets have been cut for so long and people have ignored six, five to seven or eight upgrades for so long that they have to, you know, people are starting to hire and have to hire and have to get some of these upgrades done. So it's 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 very, very impressive to watch. So if anybody out there is is, is thinking there's not a lot of activity in employment, 
get a Twitter account and follow Lotus Watch. You'll see. Excellent. Good tip. Okay, uh, on the subject of tips, we're on to um, our, our tips from the panellists on this call. Um, as we're going to do every week, we're just looking for a product or a feature or a, a development technique or a useful site that could be of um, interest to people that are listening to this podcast. So how about, how about we start with Darren? Have you got a tip for us this week? Uh, Lotus Watch. There we go. We'll keep this quick. <laughs> That's cheating. We'll let you get away with that. How, how about you, Peter? <laughs> Um, I was racking my brains for one, which isn't going to be something you can just Google. Um, on technology side, I thoroughly recommend Spotify Premium with the Spotify Android client. It's just revolutionized how I sort of take music with me everywhere. On the Domino side, um, not so much a technical tip, just a point of view, is that, um, for one thing, never use hard-coded IPs because it will come back and bite you. And the second thing is that I think everyone should adopt a philosophy of when something goes wrong, admit it straight away and it will be less painful. Um, I spend half my time fixing issues where a problem's been made and there's a culture within the company where you don't want to admit to an error because you'll be seen as somehow lesser and therefore things escalate to a, you know, a situation that's very difficult to, to get back from. Um, and so my advice to you all is to try and implement a uh, philosophy in your organisations where you would actually embrace someone who will step forward straight away and say, something seems to have gone wrong, let's work together and fix it. And you'll save yourself a lot of time, anguish and money. Wow, that's a deep subject there. So how do you change corporate culture to, uh, to take on those facets? Uh, I know, IT's, IT's a, a terrible one for that. You know, it's all about my bag of tricks and what I know and I can't be shown not to show knowledge. And um, that's why we're getting some of the deepest holes. Yeah. I'll have to, to meet with you over a beer sometime. You have to tell me what, what led to that comment. <laughs> On the subject of Spotify Premium, how much does that cost? It's um, £10 a month. Okay. But you can, you you can take your playlist offline. Yeah, I mean, I tried everything music-wise. Um, you know, burning CDs, having a USB stick which plugged into cough, stereos and things like that. It's always hard to maintain. With something like Spotify Premium, you just build your online playlist and you can sync it to multiple machines and take them offline. And therefore, my active place, what I'm interested currently listening to at the moment, is wherever I am. And that's what I like. It's fantastic. Excellent. And, and there's a client for the iPhone as well. And uh, Spotify's at, what, Spotify.com, I think. And uh, I'd imagine, yeah. It's not available in the US. That's the only thing for US listeners. Really? Yeah. Oh, yeah. Upsetting for them. <laughs> <laughs> and on that topic, let's go to Mitch. Have you got a tip for us? So I guess the one I'll go with is I discovered something this week in Google Reader, which apparently has been there for a while, but I never knew about. Uh, and that's the ability to create bundles of feeds within Google Reader and then embed them or share them out. And I've actually found it useful to create some bundles uh, and share them with people to say, you know, here's all the Lotus Connection stuff I follow. Go. Uh, instead of, you know, trying to pass on individual feeds or going and building your own aggregation. Uh, so that's the one I'll pass along. Uh, just search for uh, bundles in Google Reader. Excellent. So is that like an OPML file, or is it something sort of you can, more deeply embedded into the UI? You can create an OPML file out of one, but it's also a UI, and it also gives you the ability to very easily take them and either share them as part of your shared items, or you can also, or you can create OPML out of it, or you can also, you know, get some embed codes and embed them on websites. Oh, brilliant. Okay, we'll take a look at that. So that's at um, Google.com/reader, I guess. Yeah, I'll, I'll pass you a link uh, for it to share along. Okay, we'll put that. And like I said, it's been there a while. I just found it this week. Okay, and on that topic, Feedly is great as well. If anybody hasn't tried that, F W E D L Y. If you go to feedly.com, you can see what that's about. 
Um, so last but not least, Lewis, do you have a, a tip for us? A technology tip. Now, I may well be a years behind in this, given that I only discovered uh, Skype about 15 months ago. But my, my tip is Dropbox.com, which I discovered about two or three weeks ago uh, and has a, a number of features that allows you to sync your files that are on your PC or Mac to a central server. Uh, benefits being if you've then got a different PC or Mac, you can sync your documents so you've always got the latest version on that device. If you've got an iPad or an iPhone, um, you can access your documents and you can take some offline with you as well. And if you want to share files with somebody, rather than sending them an email attachment, you can, uh, you can make it a shared folder and send them a link through Dropbox. Your first two gigs are free and they've got quite a clever nifty tool that if somebody that uses Dropbox refers you, then you and the re- both the referrer and the referee both get an extra 250 megs. So I think my two gigs is up to almost four gigs now just by referring people. Um, it's a clever way of backing up your data remotely. It's an awesome tool. Uh, and there's a client for the iPhone as well, which is brilliant. So you can get, yep. um, you know, get your files when you're on your phone as well. Um, which is super for having PowerPoints and um, or Symphony files. Um, Stuart, and, wash your mouth out. <laughs> showing people them on your phone and so on as well. Exactly. Um, the iPad client is very cool. Oh, excellent. I didn't realize they had an iPad version as well. And, and Android. Android. Hooray. Anybody know where the files are stored? In which country? The cloud. Yeah, that big cloud. In the <laughs> I'm a salesman, so, no. so it's the big cloud in the sky. <laughs> And for me, what's been really interesting with Dropbox is the integration at the desktop end. The, the Mac integration, the way it appears in Finder and just works in terms of synchronization, is probably a lesson to people out there, not mentioning any names, that develop integration with file sharing type tools, uh, how they do that. So, um, so yeah, Dropbox is definitely a tip from, from me too. Um, my, my tip was going to be a tweet deck. Um, many of you will be Twitter users and probably will have tried tweet deck in the past. It's been a new release this week. Um, 0.34.2, so not quite a version one yet. Uh, but that brings integration with Foursquare uh, and Google Buzz and also allows you to schedule tweets, which I must say I haven't tried yet, but I just love the idea of being able to tweet at a particular time to um, to get your, your readers to, to hear about a new blog post or whatever as well. Um, it's available for the Mac, Linux, Windows. Uh, it runs on Adobe, Adobe Air, sorry, so it's very easy to, to install. Um, and I just love it because you can have um, many, many columns which allow you to, to follow searches and lists and, and uh, f- integration with Facebook and so on as well, all in the one client. So, uh, so yeah, TweetDeck is my tip. Um, those on the call, which what uh, Twitter client is your favourite at the moment? I'm using TweetDeck Tweet as well there, Stuart. Okay. TweetDeck. TweetDeck, got another fan there. And Mitch? TweetDeck. Hey, there we um, go. It's it's Twitterific on the iPad for me, and a little Firefox add-on called Echofon on the Mac. Okay, I've heard lots about Echofon. Must give it a try at some stage. So thank you to everybody that's joined on the call. I hope you've all enjoyed our conversation. Obviously, we'll be back again next week for episode three. Uh, before we go, just go around the houses and ask you what's the best way of people getting hold of you or following you or finding out more about you. So let's start with you, Mitch. How do people find you? CuriousMitch.com, CuriousMitch on Twitter, CuriousMitch pretty much uh, everywhere. Excellent. <laughs> I wish I had <laughs> come up with a name like that at the beginning that didn't get bought by other people. So well done with that one. Uh, Lewis, how about you? I'm at Lewis Turek on Twitter. 
Uh, and just while I've got the, the stage, for all of our UK people listening, we have got uh, an IBM event, the Lotus UK Power of Business Applications event on the 16th of June in Bedfont. It's a free event for both technical and business folk. Uh, I think you'd all do well to come along. So come to me or Stuart or, or any of us and we'll give you some more details about that. If you give us a URL, Lewis, as well, we'll put that in the show notes. We can do that. Excellent. Uh, and Darren, how about you? blog.darrenduke.net or Darren Duke on Twitter. Excellent. And Peter? I'm PD Smith on Twitter or uh, an archaic email, peter.smith at landsland.com. Excellent. Well, thank you to all for joining. Uh, I hope you've enjoyed listening, folks, and we'll be back next week. Till then, this was This Week in Lotus, and I'm Stuart McIntyre. Bye then. Hi, Stuart McIntyre here. I just wanted to quickly jump on and say a huge apology for the very noisy nature of today's conversation. Um, we particularly had some issues with my microphone and setup here, um, and I imagine it was a little bit difficult to listen to. So please accept our apologies. We will endeavour to do very, very much better for next time's episode. Uh, but for now, thank you very much for listening, and we'll see you soon. Bye for now. All opinions expressed during this podcast are those of the participants only and do not necessarily represent those of their employer. This Week in Lotus is sponsored by Moo.com, the online provider with the most beautiful and coolest business cards around. For more information, go to thisweekinlotus.com slash moo.